Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to another episode of Stop the Killing. We have got a very special guest with us today. And the funny thing about our lovely guest, and I will get her to introduce herself in a moment, is that I know about this person, her story very well. But Catherine, I have made go under the cone of silence and not research her at all. So I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation about the F word, fight. So I'm Taryn Newell. I am a survivor from Dirty John Meehan, who was my stepdad that my mom married, uh, not knowing he was a psychopath. And unfortunately, he ended up coming after me in a parking garage and trying to kill me or unalive me. And he was unsuccessful in it. And I actually was able to get the knife from him and kill and stab him in self-defense. Mic drop. I love that you are willing to share, even though every survivor I've ever spoken with talks about how re-traumatizing it can be. And and I see you shaking your head. Yes, right. It's, it is re-traumatizing and it's very generous of you to do this so that others can see what it's like. So I just wanted to put that on the table first. Well, thank you. I think for me, it's become a part of my healing journey because now my trauma is not living in my body. I get to release it whenever I can. And so for me, like, yes, there are certain things that trigger me or I'll have certain realizations when I'm telling the story, even till this day. However, I think that it's been so great for me to tell it because unfortunately, there are so many survivors that don't tell their stories. And it's like you're putting a bandaid over a wound and not letting it like air out and heal. Where I get that that's some people's journeys. But for me, the way to move through this trauma is by releasing it and not letting it stay stuck in me. Yeah. And I understand that because, you know, when I started on this endeavor many, many years ago, one of the people I initially connected with was a victim uh, who survived the Virginia Tech shooting. She's the most seriously injured survivor. She, she was shot three times. So she had such a long journey and continues that journey. But she also, she established a foundation that focuses primarily on first responders and their journey that they go through. And that's the way that she connects. So everybody does their own journey and there's no right or wrong way to do it. I think we'd say that from the outset for anybody who might be listening, who has their own survivor story or 
who may have one in the future or lives around somebody who is a survivor of trauma that, you know, everybody has their own story. But I'm intrigued to hear your story. So really, I guess what I want to ask you first is, you were living where when your mom met? I'm going to kind of call this guy John. Yes, his name was John. Yes, I'm. I was living in Vegas at the time Mm -hmm. when my mom met John, and I actually went back to California to meet him to help her move, and that's when I first initially met him, and the only things I heard about him was from my sister, but my sister is very judgmental of the guys that my mom dates, for, you know, good reasons, but, you know, it's that constant cycle of, like, oh... Like, I don't like him. I don't like him. I don't like him. So my mom was thinking this was just another guy that my sister didn't like. So other people had been around him and your mom, right? Do you remember the first time you met him? Yeah. So my, well, my sister met him the first night that they went on the date. And then she didn't like him from the moment she met him. And then I met him two months into the relationship when my mom was actually moving to a house on Balboa Island to get away from my sister and create boundaries, which is good in a sense if you're not dating a psychopath. Yeah, well said. (laughs) There's that. That's probably should go on a bumper sticker. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'm living in Vegas. I come down to Newport to meet my mom and to help her move. And Mm -hmm. that's when I first initially meet him is when he's moving a mattress on the truck. And I know it's him because her truck says Ambrosia. And Mm -hmm. so um, I was like, okay, that must be him. And then my boyfriend at the time went to help him move the mattress and get it on the car. But my boyfriend at the time just had a cast on. So it was very hard for him to help him. (laughs) (laughs) And what was your first impression of him? What kind of, a, can you describe him? So he was kind of like, he looked like that day where he was kind of like working out, workout attire, average like white male, kind of like quarterback looking like, you know, he would have been on like the football team, one of the popular guys, like just that kind of vibe. My mom thought he was good looking, but I'm a bit biased because of my attack. I just can't even go there. But I guess to other women, he was good looking. He was a good looking white male. And okay. And how old was he at the time? And how old were you, if you recall? He was a little bit younger than my mom. So I want to say he was in his late 40s or early 50s. So he was kind of an athletic guy. Oh, he was yeah. kind of a he was kind of tall, taller than you. Yes, he was six two, I believe, and had like a good foot on me. Which I I know I've met you in person. You're really close to six two, as long as you're only like a foot off of that, right? I'm five two, so I'm you know <laughs> so close. It's kind of like when Sarah and I are trying to figure out Celsius versus Fahrenheit. True, <laughs> true, true, true. We're so close. <laughs> so, so, so you meet this guy, he's a big guy, younger than your mom, potentially older than you by, you know, probably 15 years or so. At least, yes. <laughs> yeah. So she didn't really know him. You didn't know him super well. 
No, I didn't know him really at all, other than the stuff that my sister mm-hmm. told me and I heard from her. And then and what did your sister tell you about him? My sister told me that he's a grifter, that he seems shady, but Literally, that he was just like, there's something up about him that she thinks he's a player. My sister's really good at catching the grift. And there is just a grift about him. You know, I love my sister, but I was like, maybe she's being too harsh. I just wanted to see for myself who he was. So I was actually living in Vegas until a certain point. And then my boyfriend and I broke up. And that's actually when John and my mom came because they were in Vegas and John waited in the car for my mom to help me like pack up stuff. And John was also texting my mom being like, you need to hurry up. And I'm like bawling my eyes out, losing my first love of my life and (laughs) having to pack up this whole house on my own. And she has to leave and go attend to John because John put a lot of rules with her. John wanted control over everything and John didn't want her to be with us for a certain amount of time. Abusers, Mm. those of you listening who are dealing with that, right? The first thing an abuser does is separate a person from their family and friends. That way they lose lose the ability to uh, have somebody to go to, which is so sad. Yeah, no, so he was starting to isolate her and really isolate her at this point. And at this point, she couldn't even see my sister. She would sneak around and see my sister because he would literally threaten to kill my sister and say, I would jump your daughter at the bottom of the ocean where nobody could find her. And so what? So he would what? When was that happening in this? uh, How far in was this to the situation? Was this when she was? breaking apart from him or from the get-go i literally think he did it like three months into the relationship bloody hell yes was it a fast kind of grooming period yes like he moved in fast with her and then because jacqueline was acting erratic so he was able to be like your daughter's acting like this this is ridiculous and so Most therapists would agree you need to put boundaries up with your daughter, but not when you're dealing with a psychopath. (laughs) I love that. That's going to be the line, but not when you're dealing with a psychopath. (laughs) How many things can we put before that sentence? So you are moving out and you're bawling your eyes out and your mom is getting text messages from John saying, get out here. Come on. You're taking too long. Come to the car. And she goes out to the car to appease him. And this is just part of the pattern, it sounds like. And I just knew because I was with this guy. We weren't together together, but it was like no way he could be with someone else because he spends so much time with me. But these these type of perpetrators just find a way. (laughs) Their whole life is just about like making people miserable. So I had that experience with him and he actually hit me with a car. So. I kind of saw that, like, okay, my mom's kind of in the same scenario with this guy, but she's more into it. Like, she's married to him. Well, and we didn't find out she was married to him until we hired the private investigator. Wait, wait, started- wait. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait. Back up. <laughs> there's a lot in there. Wait a minute. Yeah, you're, yeah, there's a lot in that sense. 
Did you know your mom was married at the time? We didn't know she was married at all. And did the private investigator tell you? Yes. It really did suck because it, when we got that news, we oh. really think like it's not going to be that easy to get her out of this now. Yeah, she's in. Yeah. That's his way of snagging her in early. So she got together with him like September 2014. Then we hire the private investigator a couple of months later. Then she leaves him March 7th, 2015, and then gets back together with him a couple months later and then leaves him again on March 7th, 2016. Oh, my gosh. So how did you get her to leave him the first time or the second time? By the investigator, but unfortunately, John was able to weasel his way back in and bring my mom to different lawyers. And these lawyers told her that what we found was different John Meehan's and that wow. we were not correct in our findings. And it's crazy, too, because John would get lawyers disbarred. And so he had so many lawyers under his like palm. Whenever something didn't go his way with the lawyer, he would get them disbarred. And he went to law school. He didn't like graduate or anything, but he knew the law and he Mm. knew the system. And same with even being like a nurse and stuff, like he worked that system where he sold drugs. And I think part of the story, the piece that we might be missing is also that he had actually served time in prison, hadn't he, before he met your mother. Is that right? Oh, yes. But that's why he didn't have his nursing license at the time. He did go to school and have his nursing certificate and everything. And that's actually what I found like the day before Thanksgiving. I actually saw a box with all his stuff. And then I confronted my mom about it. And on top of that box is a nursing certificate. But I don't know the medical field. So I'm thinking, oh, he's a doctor and nurse anesthesiologist. And he's also a nurse. Because that's what he told your mother, right? That he was a, a doctor. Yes, and that he was an anesthesiologist. So for him, that was a red flag for me to see it, but I didn't connect the dots. <laughs> yeah. So you Gosh. were probably on his radar when you didn't even know it. A hundred percent. Like, and then I was having questions about him where I was like, why is he using all my mom's cars? Where's his cars? Isn't he a doctor? Doesn't he have cars? Doesn't he mm-hmm. have a nice job? And this is when the story came out that all his cars, like three or two cars got stolen. And then he had a motorcycle that got stolen also in the desert. And he was waiting for the insurance claim. And I was like, that's weird for them to take so long about this. Like they would at least like give you a loaner car, something up front, especially if so much of this got stolen. When you're asking those questions and you're kind of like, going, well, that's a bit weird, but still not thinking this guy was as bad as he actually was. Like, yeah. I was thinking this guy was a loser more so opposed to a psychopath. Right. Yeah. 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 Top five things before we get to that day. Top five things that you think right off, you know, now that one of them could have been a good red flag. Well, the love bombing one. Whenever I hear my girlfriends dating a guy, going on lavish trips or anything, and it's right away, I'm like, you're getting love bomb, girl. They usually come back and like 
two weeks later, three weeks later, a month later, they're like, Tara, you were so right. I just couldn't hear it in the moment. (laughs) Mm. So, you know, there's the love bombing. I think like him not having any cars, but claiming to be very prestigious in this way, like him being a doctor. And please don't hate me for saying this, but I think being a doctor sometimes is a red flag. I'm reading a book at the moment called Surrounded by Psychopaths, and it had a list of the most psychopathic jobs and surgeons right in there. So they, you're not wrong. very encouraging for anybody who is listening and is about to go out to have surgery. <laughs> True. Good luck with that appendectomy. <laughs> and so I think like, you know, looking at these people of power, that's kind of a red flag. But all of these you kind of have to decipher through, you know, because there are good people out there and it does get mixed in. But with good people, you make them wait. <laughs> Isn't that just another massive red flag as well as when we're talking about coercive control and love bombing and all those behaviors that fraudsters, grifters, whatever you want to call them, use? Time is such a massive factor in it, the way that they put a ticking time limit on everything. There's urgency behind it. And that's like you say, all of a sudden he's married within a couple of months. He's moved in within a couple of months. And it's that tick, 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 tick. Yeah. he's And he was in the car waiting and he's reaching out to her saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. So controlling. So did you see he was controlling? I spotted this right away. And then I also, the first time I went met him and we went to dinner afterwards he literally wouldn't let me out of the car i told him i'm like oh the child locks on and then i told him one more time a bit louder thinking he didn't hear me he literally got out of the car and went upstairs and me and my friends were left in the back and i know like we're locked in the car and I honestly was probably being a bit dramatic because I was just like, this is so fucking weird. Yeah. But we're in the back of the car. You need to come let us down. But it was like. Yeah. That's wow. What a passive aggressive guy. I did read in that book again, surrounded by psychopaths. Can't remember the author, but one of the things that really stuck with me is, you know, sometimes we always try and work out what a psychopath's motivation is. And in it, he was just like, it's just, sometimes it's just to fuck with you. It's just literally to fuck with you. Excuse my language, beep, beep, but it sounds well, like she, that's a bit like, of what was going on. And it's also testing me. Like That's right. Okay. True. It's very true. Thomas Erickson is the author. Thank you. Sorry. We oh, always dear. want to attribute authors, right, for their books. <laughs> yes, Thomas Erickson. the author in the room. Says the author in the room. But right, they're testing. I mean, Tara, that's a good po- that thing that you pointed out is, you know, we see that with uh, with killers all the time. They test out uh, somebody who wants to go, you know, shoot up a school. They will go in and see if they can carry something in like a pretend weapon, right? Just to yeah. see how people respond. Psychopaths are excellent, you know, perimeter runners. So they do surveillance because they're such uh, egomaniacs that they want to be perfect at what they do. And in order to be perfect, they have to know in their mind what all the variables are. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. 
from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, StubForge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from StubForge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But StubForge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, StubForge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With StubForge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to StubForge.com. Start creating today and see how StubForge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit StubForge.com and start making tickets today. So you have this guy that is kooky from the beginning. You're dealing with somebody who you've seen the manipulation, you've seen the control, the physical control over you and over your mom. Yeah, so it came to a point where my mom left him for the second time. We found out all the stuff about him. At this time, my mom actually hired a private investigator herself. And then we found out during this time that he literally went to jail. And this is just one of the things we found out. He went to jail. He cut open his stomach and he stuffed feces in there so that he could go to the hospital and get his drug fix. Wow. And. I knew if he could do that to himself, yeah, have no problem hurting anyone else. And that's when it clicked me. And it's crazy, too, because when I was living in Newport right before my attack, I would go stay with my ex-boyfriend sometimes just because I felt fear. And I wrote my ex a letter being like, the dog is yours if anything happens to me. You know, I wrote out a will because I had feelings that this was going to happen. And everybody, wow. all the experts said, no, he's going to go after Jacqueline. He won't go after Tara at all. And, mm -hmm. you know, he did test my sister one of the nights the night before. He actually showed up at the Carlisle's, which was my mom's apartment with my sister. But mm -hmm. it was very heavily security there and there was gates. And then my sister saw him with her guy friend. And here's the thing. John was not down for confrontation if there was another male there. He just didn't like to fight with another male. But he loved to have the control over females. Right. And I wonder yeah. if that has anything to do with like his childhood or his dad or anything. 
or even just like his brother because he sent his uh, brother drugs that he overdosed on and killed himself with. Well, I don't think it was intentional, but like that's how he died was from the drugs that John sent him. So I think there was a wheel. Wow. Weird May thing. I just say wow? Yeah, that's, that's you're just dropping bombs like they are, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Like what. we're walking through a landmine in Vietnam. <laughs> exactly. Jeepers. John, John was a very interesting person in the sense where everything he did was not appropriate or right. He was a little kid growing up at like the casinos, literally dumping cigarettes into the trash for the ashtrays. And that's like his childhood, part of his childhood. And then I also found out through his sisters that he beat up his sister so badly on her 16th birthday or something one of her birthdays and it was just he didn't want to see her get the attention or the control or anything you know so his issues with women started early on Hmm. yeah interesting and sad Yeah. yeah so he so it's all about controlling women and it's all about abusing women you know pretty typical domestic abuse and you combine that with the grifting you know, mm-hmm. he found a way to use women financially in order to get what he wanted at the same but time it, hating them, he, I guess. It's weird, too, because sometimes the grifters, will, they'll have different relationships with all the women. Like, they'll all use them in a sense, but some women will be, like, more so their confidant. This woman that he marries will be the woman that he's, like, obsessed with in a different way. Like, because he only got married twice. And he's only been married to Tanya and my mom. What was it with those two women that made him want to marry them instead? And for me, I think it was honestly like this appeasement of my mom and maybe of Tanya. But I use this term narcissist dream. When a narcissist finds an easy, agreeable woman, very soft-spoken, very polite. Those are like the narcissist dreams because I've known many narcissists, many psychopaths all over the spectrum. I've just seen it all. (laughs) You hang out with good people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Newport too, I say there's a lot of interesting characters here given the wealth dynamic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, I remember when we were delving into my sister's story on Connie Con, and the psychologist on it said that idea that psychopaths in particular put up a psychopathic mask where they reflect back to you what you want. So could it be possible perhaps that he could see in those two women that what they really wanted was to be married and that was going to give him the utility to get what he wanted out of them long term? Oh my gosh, you just made me have a realization. Because my mom, she grew up Nazarene Christian. So having that marriage has been everything to her, even though they haven't worked out and stuff. That's like her heart's desire. And that's what psychopaths look for. They mirror back to you exactly what you want so that they can get what they want in return. So. Maybe that's what he saw in Tanya as well. And it, I mean, in the, it, that's a lot of people's dream, not everybody's, but a lot right. of people's dream is to be in a happy, loving marriage. So, you know, it wasn't like he well, was stretching it, in the back of his brain and coming up with this new scheme. Yeah. And we're all susceptible to 
um, you meet somebody and we want them to provide for us what we want. You know, uh, it's the classic, uh, you know, sure, I love watching hockey. Let's go. Right. But a narcissist, I think, and a psychopath, both of those, you see the patterns when I was in the FBI. I, particularly, I remember a guy who I put into jail after his parents came to me and said, our son is a psychopath and he's doing this fraud. Right. No kidding. The parents were the ones who opened our case. God, and then, if only more parents would do that. You know what? They, they saw the damage, the injury that he did to all their friends who had businesses. But I was just going to add that in the end, right before I put him in jail, he was taking money from this couple who lived in Milwaukee and he would go over and like shovel their sidewalk and stop by to say hi to them. And this couple's had like five kids, adult kids. This was an elderly couple. And the couple's kids reached out to me, not even knowing that we were rolling a case on this guy and said, this guy is a grifter and he is taking 10 and 20 and $30,000 at a time, every bit of my parents' money. Wow. It's not and small amounts. But what he was getting, oh, it was a lot of money. And what he was giving them the look back at them is, you know, when I went and talked to the couple, the dad said to me, well, you know, he comes by, you know, and uh, he stops in to check to see how we're doing. And, you know, I got kids that don't do that. He was getting exactly what is. he wanted. There it is. His adult kids weren't doing it. And he cued on that. Yeah. And of course, this was a couple he met at church where he was grifting oh, everybody at church. Yeah. It's a great feeder in to a grifter. See, I like I have different opinions about church now just because <laughs> working in true crime, being in the space that we're in, you know, and I see so many of these grifters even in the church. Oh, it's, I mean, I was gonna say, especially in the church. It's made for a grift it's a grifter's dream. Yeah, I mean, because it's not the church or it's not the religion, it's the aspect of here's an opportunity you to find as many marks as you can. It's like why you see pedophiles go into teaching and scouting, right? It's in coaching. They want to be near their marks. And church is just filled with the variety of people who are looking for something. And baseline, baseline for religion is that your congregation is full of people who believe in something without physical proof. Perfect for a grifter. Perfect. So my mom left him again on March 7th, 2016, and she literally went with my sister to clear out her house in Vegas. My sister filmed her clearing out the house in Vegas to have evidence that she wasn't taking any of his stuff. And he actually called the cops on my mom and said that she hit him and she was in Vegas. So the cops actually were like, okay, we'll let this one go. He hasn't got that long an arm. Yeah, and because she also showed proof that she was in Vegas, too. And then afterwards, he started stalking us during that time. And so this was he, in California, right? Yes, but he would leave. So they had a house in Vegas. California and Vegas are not 20 yards from each other. Yes. No, it's like a four and a half hour drive. 
And so he would come here, stalk us, get information on us. And it was weird because I would always feel like I'm being watched. I was like, where is that person? And creepy. So what happened in that week before, Tara? So I had his dog. The dog got loose in Vegas and we waited a few days for him to get the dog because we don't want to poke the bear. And he ended up leaving the dog there and they were like, okay, we're going to go get the dog because that's not fair. The dog being the pound. And it was probably like a couple weeks beforehand that I got the dog. And I was just sharing custody with my mom because I worked at a dog kennel. What kind of dog? It's an English cream golden retriever and like pretty sweetheart. So great. But I have a mini Aussie and I'm a small girl. I don't need like a hundred pound dog. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure. Uh, You're sharing custody of the dog for a couple of weeks before this incident occurs. Yes. And then I actually go on a hike with the dog and Cash. That was my dog that passed away. and. I met these two Rhodesian Ridgebacks on the trail, and then the day after, on the 19th, August 19th, I had a call, and this person called and made an appointment for two Rhodesian Ridgebacks to get room, and this person was asking me about my schedule, and usually I get information about the person, their number, their name, everything. It was during feeding time, and so the dogs were barking at me, and I just wanted to get this person off the phone. So I didn't get the information that I normally get. I know now it was John on the phone. But he had to have been following you in order to know that those two dogs, you saw those two dogs. Yes. Yes. So that's why I knew that he was stalking me and following me. And that like confirmed everything afterwards. But I literally went to work the next day and those dogs were in no show. So that messed up my schedule, actually. And so I went home to get ready at lunchtime and I came back early so that I could leave early. And I finished up, um, fed all the dogs, let them out and everything. And then I left around five and I arrive at my place. The gate's actually broken. And I look over and I see a guy fiddling with a tire iron in his like trunk. My dog immediately starts barking aggressively at him. I tell my dog to knock it off because I thought it was just a homeless guy. And I pull into my space. I get out of my car. I grab my dog. And that's when John grabbed me by the waist, looked me in the eyes and said, do you remember me? Join us next week for part two of this incredible interview with Tara Newell. Or if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon, part two is available now. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. 
Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. I will be there with my co-host Catherine Schweit from Stop the Killing. So come and join us and don't forget to quote Ferris for your special 10% discount. Head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. And that discount code again, Ferris as in my last name. Ferris like the wheel, Ferris like Beulah, whatever way you choose to remember it. Don't forget to put it in and you'll get 10% off. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. -S.